It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My CEO guest today is Diane Bataya. Diane is the CEO of Village Green Holding and directly responsible for the oversight of all of Village Green Holdings operating companies. She plays an integral role in the development and implementation of the Village Green Holdings business plans and strategic initiatives. After nearly four decades at Village Green, starting as a part-time sales consultant, in 2011, Diane became the chief operating officer and a board member of Village Green Holding. In 2014, she was promoted to president and COO of Village Green, and in 2017, promoted to chief executive officer. Diane Bataya, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brant, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, it's great to have you here, and I'm so looking forward to talking uh, about you. It's rare that you see someone who starts as a part-time sales consultant and ends up as CEO, and uh, this is going to be an incredible journey. But let's start with your early years. I understand, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you grew up in in Detroit. Tell us a little bit about the early years there and what your early family life was like. Well, that's an interesting story. It uh, it dates back actually to the fact that my parents were immigrants that uh, ah. came from the Middle East. My father okay. immigrated from Jordan about right. sixty plus years ago, and came to the land of opportunity. He came without my mother. They were a year into their marriage. He parked her at his mother's home, wow. where wow. he had hoped she would learn how to cook, and. Uh, <laughs> She was, at the time, giving birth to her very first child, my oldest sister, Jeanette. He came to America along with two of his relatives in tow, and then they began searching for work, and he wanted to establish himself before sending for my mother about a year later. And so I grew up in a working-class family of immigrants, a stay-at-home mother, I think she was the CEO of the family. She essentially <laughs> ran things. Ultimately, she bore seven children. Oh, my goodness. And my father is a longtime auto uh, worker at of Ford course. Motor Company, 40 yeah. years there wow. in the city of Detroit. Learned yeah. a lot of things from that, which we'll probably get into a little bit later. Sure. But my mother raised seven children. My goodness. There were six girls and <laughs> one boy. Wait for it. Wait for it. We grew up in a 900 square foot home in oh. Southwest Detroit with wow. one bathroom. Oh. Now picture that six girls with wow. one bathroom. 
Wow. Is the boy the youngest? He absolutely is. <laughs> Every single time uh, my mother was pregnant, I'll never forget it. My relatives all gathered around kind of in hopes of having that oh my child goodness. son. Oh my goodness. As you might imagine, in an immigrant family, having a son to carry on the name was extremely yes. important. So right. Every time he would have a daughter, everybody would sort of lament, Yaweli Abrahim. <laughs> and what that means is poor A.B., right? Oh, I love so it. imagine, you know, sort of how that made us girls feel growing up, imagine. like second-class citizens. Oh, my when goodness. my brother was finally born, they went back to the Middle East when he was a year old. They did not cut his hair until they went back to the Middle East. They went to church had his first haircut and gave the church money. And that was their way of thanking the Lord for finally having born a son. So that was sort of the backdrop of our upbringing in uh, that neighborhood. Now, that's not to say it wasn't a very loving, close-knit family relationship, but the girls sort of had their place. Yeah. And the boys obviously had their place. Very and, traditional um, Middle Eastern culture. Very traditional. Yeah. My yeah. parents' marriage was actually an arranged marriage, believe it or not. Oh, gosh, I do. So yes. ultimately, wow. it, uh, there's a lot more in between there with that story, Brant, but I think that'll give you a sense, a high level of how I grew up and what my family life was like. Well, I, I cut my teeth in the Middle East as a first-time executive for the Procter & Gamble Company, believe it or not, and, mm-hmm. and worked all throughout that region and was, was you know, no exposed kidding. to many aspects of that culture and the food, of course, which is fantastic. Yes. But uh, that is a wonderful story. So, so literally, your younger brother grew up with nine mothers. Yes, yes. He <laughs> joked that he grew up in uh, PMS boot camp. Brand. Oh my goodness! And, oh uh, my goodness! He Poor happens guy. to be a stand-up <laughs> comic uh, by really? trade now. Yes, oh, and he actually great. uses a lot of his growing up as fodder for his stand-up routines. I can imagine. Right. Now, where are you in the pecking order? Somewhere in the middle? or I am number three from number the three. top, okay. and for many years I was the middle child, but. Right. Regardless, I took on that role of Kissinger in the family because all of my family members, my siblings all sort of paired up and I was odd man out and I sort of naturally gravitated to the role of mediator. And I think that set me up well you know, for my future career. I would say, I would I say, well, what were, what were some of those lessons from the early years, particularly from mom and dad, or maybe older sisters or younger sister and brother? <laughs> Listen, how to dodge flying objects. <laughs> particularly the 900 square early, foot space. Yes, yeah, that was, that was one of my early <laughs> sibling lessons. My father had an extremely strong work ethic. He mm. was extremely loyal to the company. Now, did, he, did he find the job when he came to Detroit no, or actually, did family members? He had a little bit of a journey there. He started yeah. out working at a sort of a corner store, if you will. And I think that merchant background coming from the Middle East, yeah, he actually... Sure was part of a agricultural family there, worked on the farm, was not educated. He w- probably had six years of schooling and worked on the farm for his father. So when he came mm-hmm. here, there was another relative who had a corner store and go. my father began there and tried to become rather entrepreneurial. That quite, quite, quite right. I would say that wasn't within his skill set. He was right. more of right. a, um, I would say a loyal worker bee, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nothing, not intended to detract whatsoever. I think he was just set up well for being the sort of person that would join a company and uh, very rules-oriented. 
So he adapted well. By the time he started working at Ford, is again, it was more of following where other relatives had gone and found success. Sure. Was so, this the post-war period then, 45, 50s? Yeah, right. So yeah. they were so hiring, the late, right? I mean, yeah, it was probably boom, boom times. Yeah. Right around 1952, right. plus right. or minus, which yeah. was absolutely, you know, the golden era of the auto companies. Sure. So when he came in, he worked on the line and he mm. kind of worked his way up to a foreman position and that Fantastic. was where he stayed. So he taught yeah. me just through observing him that loyalty to the right. company. Right. When God forbid we should buy anything but a Ford. <laughs> and that was absolutely I learned from that that when you find a company and you take care of that company and they take care of you that was a natural state for my father. And so yeah. he also conveniently worked the afternoon shifts. So he was gone mm. when we came home from school. And right. my mother did all the heavy lifting with, yeah. with child rearing. Did you see him in the evening uh, once you got we tucked did. in for bed? Yeah, We did. Although yeah. my father, I would say again, that traditional yeah, role of the role. dad, the yeah. breadwinner, right. you know, coming home and not necessarily being that connected to the children Although I'm not saying he didn't show us sure. love in his way. Sure. Mom was really times. the person, much, much different. Yeah. My mother was very, she was a stay-at-home mother, but her workload was immense with that many oh, children. So she taught us the strength of family, the sure. bonds. Uh, she was very self-sacrificing and mm. took care of everyone, including other relatives that followed them. She was very well liked. She had a very she had a great, engaging, approachable personality. Mm. So I learned that just through observing my mother and her ability to help people solve problems and her putting herself second was something that I watched and learned from, and I think um, is part of ingrained in me today in terms of my leadership style. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, just to build a little bit on that loyalty lesson from your dad, I know you've spent almost your entire career, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes uh, at Village Green. Uh, not too dissimilarly, I spent two, my, my first corporate jobs were 10 years each with two great companies, Procter & Gamble and Disney, but my son worked at Ford straight out of school. And uh, I drive a Mustang with the employee discount, which is mm -hmm. nice, but he had a wonderful well, hey. five, six years there, decided to go off into the startup world. But, you know, I counsel so many um, kids of the executives I work with because they say, Brant, they won't speak to me. Talk to them about their career. And I give them that lesson. I tell them, you know, go work for a large company, get a chance to spend several years there. Don't be a job hopper because there's a lot to be learned, even if your pay may not cape up with the standards that, you know, your cohorts might have in school. You know, there's a lot to be learned providing that loyalty and getting the type of training and education with great companies like Ford. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. So tell us about your student years. I mean, you, uh, you know, obviously went to, to, to school locally. Were you a good student there? Did you, you know, I mean, your kids were probably all just one year apart. So you probably had many of the same teachers your older sisters had we as did. well. We did. And I think as is probably true in most large families, every child has their shtick, right, I'll, right. I'll call it. So there's the one who's sort of the troublemaker. There's the one who's <laughs> the, you know, the one getting all the attention and there's the talented one in music or dance and what right. have you. I was the studious scholarly ah, sibling. Okay. I always it. excelled in school and I didn't really 
uh, look for many accolades. In fact, I was always very embarrassed about the attention that I got making sort of the National Honor Society. And mm, school was a comfort zone for me. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Right. And so one of my sisters, actually the one just younger than me, wasn't quite as, um, I would say, skilled or maybe mm. it was an attention issue for her, but she was in one of my classes with me, a oh. humanities course where right. there was sort of a mixed grades. And I can recall her sitting next to me and trying to steal my answers off my paper <laughs> and I would cover it up. And she, would, she got mad at me because she uh, thought I allowed you, you, the cute boy yeah. on my other side to sneak a peek, but not her. <laughs> uh, that wasn't necessarily true. Uh, I so love it. I, that great. was, that was sort of my role. And I, I, had great relationships with the teachers. I will tell you one of the things that I remember very distinctly is mm. I didn't feel in my comfort zone with similarly aged people. I really? always huh. uh, gravitated older. to the older people. Yeah. Yeah. And so maturity that levels probably was that what attracted you or hard to know at the time? You know, in the moment, mm -hmm. I didn't connect the dots. But right. as I look back, I do think it was that I might have matured a little bit more rapidly. And that, sure. again, could be a product of my home life and the role that I played there. But uh, I always kind of was ready for the next thing. Right, and right. so that was a big, a very fun memory for me is that I, I really enjoyed school. And right. ultimately, when I went on to higher learning, that was something that came naturally to me. What about outside of class, sports, you know, music, theater? Were there other interests that you pursued, Diane? Well, let me say I always got picked last in dodgeball, so that should give you a sense of my athletic abilities. Okay. Um, I did actually play softball, again, just for fun. It wasn't as though I was on a team or what right. have you, but I enjoyed team sports. I was not something, it wasn't something that I would say I was passionate about. Mm -hmm, I was, mm -hmm. however, part of the band in school, flute okay, player. Okay, good. One what, of my which very, instrument? Uh, the flute. The flute, okay. Yes, one of my... Very early mentors and inspirations was my band instructor, ah. Mr. Rowley. He, I would say, influenced, he was probably the first person, I think, that influenced the trajectory of my life outside ah, of outside being yeah. inner city. And what were some of the inspirations he gave you or, or messages that you remember from those days? Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. That is a lesson that I take to this day and I share with young people yeah. in our company on how to be successful is to just get outside your comfort zone. Yeah. I was, I can recall, I was accepted at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and I, I applied for school and I took, you know, the uh, SATs because that's what everyone else was doing, right. right? You just had that peer pressure to do that. And although I had really no inspiration, uh, from my family to go on to higher learning. Yeah, it wasn't my really a foregone conclusion you'd go it to was college, not. right? Yeah, right. Their idea of success, Brant, was to find a husband with great health insurance. <laughs> so wow. once again, not to take away from, you know, the influences of my parents, which was sure. great and I carry to this day. They're very but traditional. That yeah career, career did not come into the kind of Lexicon. mix for, for yeah. a female. Yeah. And so Mr. Raleigh, I'll never forget. I was mm. talking to him about sort of lamenting over what, am, what should I do? And he just looked at me very directly. And he said, if you are thinking of doing anything other than accepting your acceptance into this highly accredited university and getting 
the heck out of Detroit and making something of yourself beyond what you can do here, you're an idiot, right? Mm. So he, he essentially pushed me. Um, that was him. an uncomfortable conversation I had with my parents. And um, when they dropped me off at college, I'll never forget, one of the gentlemen in our dorm was kind of casually walking by going, hey, party in the dorm tonight. And I'll never forget my <laughs> father. Was like, they like, to I hear. am not leaving you here. Get back in the car. So that was, oh, that was interesting. But I going back, it. other influence, other things I did extracurricularly, yeah. which um, I'll share is that I was very into politics. I was oh. part of youth in government. I worked right. on a local campaign and I ultimately really? thought I would be in politics someday. That was nice. something that really attracted me. Yeah. What, what attracted you to that? Again, was it a coach or a teacher or was it something you kind of pursued on your own? That so that sounds interesting. Let's find out about that. It was this, it was a class in school mm-hmm. and yeah. I, it, it was something that appealed to me and I found myself really getting more interested outside the classroom and trying to absorb or digest any information I could get. So yeah. I would read, I would ask a lot of questions. I actually went um, to the, down into, I'll never forget, the campaign for Ken Cockrell for city council. Mm. And a friend of mine happened to be working on the campaign. And that sort of, I think, also teased my interest. And just understanding the difference you could make in the neighborhood. And the neighborhood that I grew up in was very underprivileged at the time. It Mm. wasn't as bad as it is today. So I saw the need and I saw the fact that one person, you know, could make a difference. And so when I Mm. began sort of venturing into those waters and seeing that it, you can make a difference and to sit back and complain and uh, have an opinion on those who are in, you know, public service I don't feel you have a right to if you're not going to actively engage and try to make a difference. So that that was an interest of mine early on, kind of late in my teen years. And to this day, I still I still have that interest. Awesome. Any entrepreneurial things or, you know, any part time work? I know probably culturally that wouldn't have sat quite well (laughs) with your parents. But did you pursue things? Oh, as I said, I had four years cutting my teeth in the Middle East. So I know made my own mistakes out there. And it's funny uh, because they brought that culture with them. So it was not, they didn't come to the United States and assimilate. They came and they brought it with them. It's usually a generation or two before that happens, right? I would, I would agree with that. And I, I, I'm going to answer your question by telling you this. Um, if you've ever read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay, you understand the concept of financial literacy and right. independence. And that wasn't something that was necessarily condoned. Mm-hmm. So to become an entrepreneur was very risky. So that was never something that uh, was was ever encouraged. approved of or encouraged, right. but right. instead looked to with somewhat of disdain, I would say, Mm. that that was too much of a risk and that you were being irresponsible, right? So that was sort of the backdrop. And I obviously don't agree with that now, but in my early years and that sort of influence, you know, I didn't understand then, you know, what I understand now. It definitely influenced my need for security. However, I did work as an, you know, obviously in school in the summer internships at a local bank as a, as a part-time teller. Mm. And so I did get some experience and 
through schooling, that was acceptable, right? If of I course. was doing it as part of school, it wasn't necessarily frowned upon. Uh, John Desai. Correct. Correct. <laughs> well, that's, you that's know, exactly right. Going to school and given you know the traditional nature of the Middle Eastern culture and. <laughs> Despite dad hearing about the party that Friday night, um, you know, there was expense involved. So did you go on scholarship? Did you have those internships pay your way? How, how did you kind of cover those expenses? Because well, I can imagine being the third one down the pecking order and six more to go. You know, that uh, was a hard thing for perhaps mom and dad to help out with. It was. It was yeah. a combination of scholarships, Good grants, and I yeah. also worked while sure. I was going through school through um, college. And I worked in food service, which is pretty common ah. for college, starving college students. And I, right. you know, basically survived off ramen noodles and peanuts and crack, <laughs> you know, uh, crackers, peanut, right. peanut butter and crackers, did what which I didn't takes. mind at all. Sure. Sure. How, I think how did it, you... was, it was a good way to do it. However, yeah. having worked my way through, it was a balance. It was difficult, but I felt as though I had accomplished something and I didn't take it for granted. Well, I was going to say, that's probably the biggest point, right? You, you were right. paying for it yourself and earning through it and you take every class right. seriously. How did you Absolutely. decide what to study and, and what was that field of study? I My undergraduate studies were political science and economics, mm -hmm, and obviously mm -hmm. my interest in politics, I thought my career path would be become a lawyer and then mm. into public service. That was my plan, and that's sort wow. of what I, under, you know, undergraduate studies were centered on pre-law. You know, what did I need? So that's back to, to the high school experience right. in public service. Yeah, interesting. Correct. Yeah. Right. Huh. And so that's how I did. But you didn't go down that road. <laughs> well, ultimately, I didn't. But that's an interesting story because yeah. that that will give you an idea of how I landed at, at Village Green very early on in oh. my life, relatively speaking. I had planned to go to law school, and I was accepted at Davis School oh. of Law in California. Wow! Yeah. And that very same it's a year, very good, very good law school. Yes, Davis. I yeah. was looking forward to that, and right. I actually a year prior had met. Someone who ultimately became my fiance at the time, who mm. I ultimately did not marry, but that's a story for another podcast, Brian. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, very colorful story. So I'll spare you the details on that. It wasn't uh, an arranged marriage, I take it. Not at all. No. And frankly, my father was very disappointed in all of his mm. daughters who not one of us married a Middle Eastern person. <laughs> not one. Uh, however, his granddaughter has married a Middle Eastern young man, ah, so it's skipped generations. So I think, go. you know, that's a good story. Mm -hmm. What I decided to do ultimately was defer acceptance. We were planning to get married, and then I would venture off and uh, and go on, right. on a deferred yeah. um, acceptance. So what ultimately happened was within that very same year, I landed the job at Village Green, which mm. I'll tell you that story in a moment. Yeah. He dumped me. <laughs> I got a dear John letter, and I think it was a little bit of fate coming in yeah. um, into play here. So I got the job. I then ended up taking a different course because I was very set on continuing my education and right. taking a path toward public service at some point. So I uh, went on to get my master's degree in public administration. Oh, so you went to that anyway. Yeah. I huh. did, and while, I did not working. get my law degree okay. while working. While and working. Huh. I ultimately, am, in retrospect, I'm rather glad I didn't do that because yeah. I might be practicing law and I'm not doing what I'm doing today. Right, right. So so Village Green was your first job out of college, pretty much. Well, it, actually, I was in college at the time, my last year. Of course. Okay. How that uh, happened, I was 
working as a waitress at the Ramshorn, the midnight <laughs> shift. And I'll never forget this. I was two weeks into the job. My fiance at the time came in, you know, and I was taking orders and in the kitchen. Um, I apparently wrote down the egg order incorrectly. And the chef, they like to be called chef, even though mm-hmm. they're short order cooks of course. at the Ramshorn, was very irate and was yelling at me because I couldn't quite figure out how to write it down correctly. So if you can picture saloon doors in the old Western movies, <laughs> well, there comes Ed, my fiance at the time, bang- bursting through, and he literally punches the guy oh, for yelling at me the chef. and disrespecting me. Yes. <laughs> well... I would tell you that if you can imagine, who do you think is more valuable to the restaurant, myself or the chef? So that (laughs) That was was the end of my career, (laughs) the short job. The following morning, I'm looking through the want ads back Mm. in the day where you actually had want ads. And I saw an ad for a a part-time leasing agent. And I thought, I wonder what that is. So I made a call and I interviewed for 20 minutes. And I was offered the job on the phone. No background check, <laughs> no <laughs> Those drug were the screening. Days. <laughs> oh, yes. And the address to which I was to show up the following wow. morning was the very building in which I lived, Brant. And report. Oh, you're kidding. Really? I am not kidding you. Oh, my gosh. So the, oh, that's wild. I showed and so up. You, you showed up at the property manager's office, right? That's right. And the next, <sighs> oh, you know, that's sort of the beginning of my career trajectory awesome. at Village Green. Awesome. Did did you have some leadership responsibilities early on or did you work as a leasing consultant for a number of years and kind of did that more as an independent contributor? Within a year's time, I was offered a promotion to in in management at another property and it was an assistant role. So I didn't really have direct reporting until the following year when I ultimately was promoted to the manager of that property. And that was sort of my first experience in a leadership people. role. Yeah. And I would say I was still very wet behind the ears. How I old were you at the time? Was 23 at the 20s. time. Yeah, fantastic. Right. Boy, great. did I learn some valuable lessons. They then. threw you right in the pool. So you were full-time right. by then, right? I was. I and, was. and, you know, what were some of the, you know, earliest lessons you learned from from bosses and mentors, good or bad? And you don't need to mention any names of the bad sure. ones, but sometimes well, it's that observation, right? That absolutely. gets you some of the more important learnings. Things that stick with you on what yeah. not to do. I remember the gentleman who happened to be the regional manager and was responsible for multiple properties and happened to be at the property. I was unaware of the fact that he was at the top of the stairs in the leasing office, and he was basically spying on on those who were in the office and really? I was taking a tour yeah. and I'll never forget he came barreling down the stairs and started yelling at me because I gave it wrong information and the prospect was standing there oh and so it was absolutely mortifying and I thought oh. to myself well I don't want to ever make someone feel that way right. so I later you know he took me aside and he talked to me further about it and I just thought to myself, well, that would have been good to do it that way rather right. than barreling down the stairs. So that yeah. taught me empathy and that taught mm. me patience and sometimes let people make mistakes and use them as teachable moments. And Praise I think we in do public, have, criticize in private. Right? Absolutely right. Yeah. And that yeah. having had that experience that very early on, I knew mm-hmm. I never wanted to make someone else feel that way. A, um, a very good lesson that I learned was actually an employee, one of the first employees I 
oversaw, and he happened to be a mentor. He was the service manager at the property mm. that I was given the reins on. Happened o- to be obviously older than you, probably, right? Yes, Had he was. He was in yeah. his early 60s. Oh, my goodness. Had, and you're in your 20s. I love I it. I absolutely yeah. am. And so yeah. here I am, wet behind the ears, hmm. property manager in charge, sort of like not completely well prepared and thinking I had to know more than I knew and basically just issuing commands because I had the pressure of my boss saying, you have to get such and such completed. So I, the lesson I learned from Al, it was a tough lesson. So he was responsible for the service crew. Right. And I, I can recall service requests stacking up. And now this would be like maintenance, right? Is that correct. the way to think about it? It's okay. maintenance, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This, they were stacking up on my desk. Mm. I rate residents, and they had gone on strike, more or less. Wow. Wow. And I called Al into my office, and I thought, you know, Al, what's going on? Help a sister out, right? Just having the conversation of sure. what's going on here. And he just very calmly said to me, do you happen to know how long it takes to change out a garbage disposal? And I said, <laughs> um, no. Do you know how long it takes to fix a leaky faucet and change a washer? Uh, No. And then he looked at me and he said, then how can you tell us what to do and how long it takes to do it? Come with me. Hmm. So he took me for the rest of the day and I basically shadowed him. You shadowed him. Good for you. And that was very, very impactful. And uh, from then on, we were partners and it taught Hmm. me it taught me empathy. It taught me it, be in the shoes. You know, it's sort of a day in your in the life, That's right. yeah. and really understand what they're doing to be able to lead them. You may not be that expert. I will never be an expert at fixing garbage disposals, but I will at least <laughs> you know understand. how much time it takes to do it. <laughs> well, you know, and Absolutely. that's an important part, right? It's managing expectations of your customer. That's one of the best rules in customer service. Right. Because you, you can have customers that are unreasonable and uh, there is always a range. And if you don't know the range of time to get something done, how can you manage their expectations? Wow. wow what a value. That's exactly lesson. right. Yeah. It was. It yeah. was. Fantastic. So, gosh, at that stage, did you ever think you'd become CEO of this company? Whoever thinks that's going to happen to them when they're 23, that was not even in my, you know, bucket list. I, right. that was the last thing I ever expected at that point in my career. And quite frankly, even later, that wasn't something that yeah. I necessarily aspired to. Right. Were the that's founders right. involved at that stage? Were they still around or had Gen the company? Two. Yeah. Okay. Gen the two. company Got has it. a very rich history. It's a hundred years old this year. And it started uh, by two Russian immigrants. Oh, really? And it actually began as a single-family home builder that evolved into multifamily in the 1960s. By the time I came in, Gen 2 was running the company, and Gen 3 was just entering the business. Nice. So I entered sort of more or less within a year's time of uh, Generation 3 coming in. Generation 3 coming in, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the name. Have they been called Village Green from the beginning? Yes, the multifamily yeah. division was called Village Green from the beginning. However, the single family business was called Holtzman and Silverman. Okay. And okay. that was obviously the name of the, the founding fathers. Yeah. yeah. 
correct. Well, it's so interesting. I love how, having read about the company background, how that's evolved from being kind of, I guess, we would call in California the garden communities, right, into now what's become a sustainable message with uh, Village Green and how, how your name really has become not only relevant to both of those concepts, but evolved over time. You were in solar back in the 70s and 80s, which is, is incredible right. thinking how, you know, long ago that was and, you know, that being a real fledging technology at the time. So it sounds like the company's really been a leader in many ways, hasn't it? It's always been centered on, you know, staying ahead of innovations and mm. ev evolution of that industry in general. So we've taught, taken our lessons from out, outside of the apartment mm -hmm, industry mm -hmm. and brought it in. Uh, obviously, sustainability, Village Green, you know, it's in our name. So it ab absolutely is part of what we stand for and who we mm. are. And so and when we were an owner operator and developing uh, properties for our own portfolio, we absolutely had more influence on what it was we created. Right. Today, we're a pure third-party operator as Village Green Service Company, and we do have owners coming to the table mm. and engaging with us to help them with evolutionary practices on their buildings. So nice. wherever we can influence it, we are using recycled materials mm. and sustainable materials, and obviously energy efficiency is key. Protecting our yeah. environment is one of, um, you know, part of the ethos of the company. Right. Absolutely. Right. Awesome. And so over the years, uh, your career progressed. Um, I would say it sounds like originally or initially through property and operations management. When did you make that transition into the C-suite, Diane? Well, there was a, there's a little bit of a story ahead of that. Mm -hmm. When I, from the management aspect of the business, I actually evolved into the development and construction side oh, in okay. the late 80s and was the person that was sent out to Denver to begin kind of our efforts in that market, right. building and acquiring and redeveloping assets. So I went from the operations side into the development side, finance, market mm. research. And I actually, I did a stint as a project superintendent on one of our projects that mm. we built. And, and so I had a lot of experience in between my operations uh, life and then through the development and finance and ultimately became the chief investment officer okay. in the uh, early 2000s. In 2016, I was then promoted to CEO when the final family member was bought out and the company currently is owned 100% by Compatriot Capital, okay. which is a subsidiary of Salmon's out of Dallas. Right, right. And it was at that point in time when the final family member moved out that I moved into the CEO spot from the CIO Got spot. Got it. So would you say in those early years when you went out to Denver and worked on development and had the finance and market research, were you being groomed? Did you feel that yeah. there was a, you know, a, a higher power or an executive power yeah. in place kind of developing you? Or was it just kind of a, a combination of, uh, you know, getting the right experiences and being in the right place at the right time? I think it was that. I think it was mm. organic. I don't yeah. think there was ever a concerted effort on the part of my boss or anyone for that matter. And circumstances evolved and things, oh, opportunities opened up. And I, sure. I did skip a step here, uh, Brant, which was in 2011. I actually, by that point, was the chief investment officer. When Compatriot came in to replace the final, uh, the partners that Jonathan Holtzman had prior right. to Compatriot, right. 
we had a COO at the time mm-hmm. who abruptly left the company. Oh. And at that point, I don't believe if that, that was a pivotal moment. Yeah. You stepped if into that If that did role. not occur, yeah. I was asked to step into the COO role. Right. And by that point, I was very happy on the investment side mm. of the business. Yeah. So I was offered that and I honestly had to think about it, right? I, I asked for a couple of weeks and I chatted with my family and mm. asked, what do you think? Because obviously it meant a much more global role and much more sure. responsibility. So at that point, I was the only other C-suite member. So it was a natural you know, uh, offer to me. The choice was, Diane, you step into this more global role or we're going to go recruit from the outside. Mm. Wow. I had to think about that. What did yeah. I want to do? Could I see myself accepting someone else coming into the company sure. rather than me stepping into the role? And I honestly saw it as an opportunity to influence the culture, which by that time had shifted somewhat from Gen mm. 2 to Gen 3. Gen three. Right. And so my sister, there was a point in time when Four of my sisters also worked for the company. Oh, my I goodness. I to tell you that Really? Part. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. We considered changing the name of the company from Holtzman and Silverman to Bataya Holtzman and Silverman, <laughs> but that did not go over well. I love I, it. It did not get approved. So <laughs> she said to me, you know, Diane, you should think about why this is happening. Mm, yeah. Maybe this is your opportunity, you know, to shift the culture and to influence and mm. to make a difference. And so that was a light bulb moment. And I absolutely said yes at that moment, knowing that there would be some heavy lifting involved. Yeah, yeah. And of course, once you stepped into that COO role, then perhaps becoming the CEO became a little bit more of uh, luck <laughs> than, than actually divine intervention. Timing. <laughs> and timing. Right, right. It was, yes. Fantastic. Well, you, you touched on culture, and I wanted to talk about that. You know, what are your thoughts on really building a company culture? Tell us a little bit about that shifting that went on, because... Boy, you probably have seen some changes, the G2 to G3, and now with a corporate ownership, right? Yeah. At the time, it was a mentality of assets first, Mm. people second, service second, even though there was absolutely Village Green has always been the gold standard when it came to apartments and apartment services. However, the internal culture was very much about assets come first at all costs and Mm. the churning and burning of employees wasn't something that was necessarily focused on. Mm. Everybody worked extremely hard. There was a there was an imbalance of sort of your quality of life on a personal front and then, mm. you know, where sort of the commitment to company. So while we were all very proud of what we were creating, there was a very difficult environment in terms of expectations. And the mentality of people first didn't exist. Wow. So, but be that as it may, it was a very successful company. Yeah. So but, for but me, probably a lot of turn though, right? It was not sustainable. High, high you you had it yeah. dead on. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And so there were quite a few talented people that didn't stick around for very long. Right. So my opportunity really was to take a look at sort of the hedgehog concept. I know mm. you've probably read yes. Jim Collins and I thought, yes. what is it that drives our economic engine? What are we really good at and what differentiates us that would enable us to build a sustainable business? Hmm. And so my after collaborating with some other top leaders, because I believe very strongly that you can't 
you cannot have a myopic view of the company. And there's no way of really understanding the potential without having others weigh in that obviously have a different perspective and different roles. And so we spent a lot of time analyzing and exploring sort of what is that, what is that hedgehog concept and what, what is that thing that really we ought to be focusing the business model on to build a sustainable company. Mm -hmm. So it came down to, we flipped the switch from asset driven to service driven. And so Mm. how do you create a great service oriented company that's sort of creating homes, which is a necessity that's a recession resistant business. And how do you differentiate the company? And so if you have extremely talented people, you can then deliver great results, which then drive great customers and great fees. Mm. And that money can be reinvested into the company to continue to attract great talent. Mm. So if we have great talent, which we do, you know, that is sort of proliferating this great service company and mentality and environment Mm. and differentiating us to, you know, enable us to become this boutique operator that's got a very high profit margin as compared to our peers. So that is really the culture shift was all around how do we attract and retain great talent? How Mm. do we give them a voice? How do they become engaged? This was a lengthy, probably two-year-long process oh, I can imagine. from yeah, start to shift. finish. Yeah. And we started with a three-paragraph-long mission statement, mm. and we changed that to what it is today, which is to deliver authentic experiences in the moment that lead to stories people want to share. Mm. And Beautiful. that says it all. Yeah, I love it. Well, you know, that's setting me up for my next question, because, you know, with that cultural shift it really does have an impact, not just on retention, but also on the people you bring in. So, you know, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in, Diane? We hire for character. Mm. It is very easy to teach people skills. Now, with the exception of technical positions in construction and in, you know, the facility side of the business, we just look for passion and drive. And I'll tell you some of our best hires Um, The marketing and sales side came from other industries, such as having a great server at a fine restaurant or Mm. a concierge at a hotel. So it's that is really what we focus on is Mm. the character, the integrity, the work ethic and the ability to be approachable and comfortable in your skin. So that's something that's really difficult to hire for by looking at a resume. We have great great. success through referrals. So some of our top talent, they generally refer their friends and family, and we find that to be a really successful model. That's what we focus on, Brant. And then we train everything else. We have a very robust in-house learning management uh, program called Village Green University. Mm. And we have undergraduate and graduate level learning. And then we have mentorships. It is an ongoing learning environment at Village Green, and we encourage it from within and externally. So I think that's really what we do to drive attracting that great talent. And we actually look in untraditional uh, ways for people where we can grab talent. So for example, trade schools, um, military veterans, some of our most successful people are uh, sports athletes, you know, athletes that have come in from, you know, as well as the military. So those are just so, a few examples. Yeah. We're actually going into high schools and trying to attract people 
at that level. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. You know, so often at my executive recruiting practice, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, so often I will, the companies will say, Brent, we'd love to work with you, but you don't have any experience in our industry. And I'm saying, well, I can find the best people in your industry. You want someone that can look at parallel industries because the talent and the culture and the passion you have may not be, you know, the best placed inside your industry. And I'm just so glad. And that that really does make sense to me. And I can understand why you get so many good people to to have that mind open to the folks that, you know, kind of, I call it kind of the portable DNA, right? That are going to be able to bring things to your company that perhaps people that have worked in the industry for 40 years may or may not have. And, uh, you know, that's an important part of a, a recruiting strategy so often that's for companies right. that really want to grow. Fantastic. It's, a, it's actually a great way to evolve a company absolutely. as well to right. bring, you know, right. outside thinking uh, into the mix. And we've, sound, we've seen great success. I brought in uh, a woman who is heading up our people services division now. Mm. Believe it or not, she came from a law firm. There you go. Why did I hire her? Yeah. Because she had experience taking that company to become a great place to work. Right. And right. that's what I wanted to that's focus on to here. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. Well, Diane, you've been so gracious with your time and it has flown by. This has been such a fun interview, but we always ask one last question. And that really is kind of what career and life advice would you give to someone who maybe has their eyes on a corner office? Maybe not over the long term, but, you know, maybe sees kind of the C-suite opportunity as Mm -hmm. something that they aspire to, or maybe they're at that point in their career where they have a sister that says, hey, you know, (laughs) how do you want to influence things moving forward? (laughs) But what would you say to that? person? I think that what I think about is the Zorro circle, right? Mm. I think you should perfect what's within your job description today. Keep your head down and be the best at what you're doing today and have faith that that will be noticed. Mm. And then you'll continue to have opportunities to expand upon that and have more influence. And then you absolutely will be noticed for results. That's the key get results. Also go after that extra 1%, right? Mm. Your job description might be X. Go one step further. Take the opportunities to do more than what's expected of you. Because again, that will be noticed. And that's the story of my career is to take what I'm asked to do and then make it that much Mm. better and sort of create your own lane that way. The other thing I would say is you know, professional presence is so important. And while everybody's human and there are emotions involved, patience is critical. You may think you're ready for something, but you may not be, right? And others may know more than you know about your readiness. And Hmm. so have that trust and faith. However, I will say, speak up for yourself. And there could be times when you're in an environment where you're successes won't necessarily be noticed and rewarded. And being able to distinguish between that, you know, versus just having some patience, that's somewhat of a skill. And you do need to stand up for yourself and make it known what your career path goals might be. And if someone says, well, you're not quite ready, ask the question, what more do I need to (laughs) do? Right? Don't just sort of be a passive participant in your career Lastly, I would say, you've probably heard this before, you have two ears and one mouth. Mm. Listen twice as much as you speak. Mm. Take every opportunity you have for learning. It may not seem relevant in the moment, but at some point in the future, 
you will think back on that and say, wow, I'm really glad that I asked more questions and I listened to what they had to say. So trust and faith and patience are all very key ingredients. But the most important one is do the very best you can do in the moment and continue on. That will be noticed and ultimately rewarded. Wonderful words of wisdom. Diane Vitaya, thank you so much, Chief Executive Officer of Village Green Holding, for sharing your story into the corner office today. Truly my pleasure, Brant. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next 